Hello, welcome to the Wounded Blue Hour. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, a 34-year police veteran, retired lieutenant from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, author of A Cop's Life, and the soon-to-be-released, yeah, you got it right there, Rescuing 911, the fight for America's safety. I'm also the founder of an organization called the Wounded Blue, and this is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. On this show, it is dedicated to the law enforcement community. We discuss all aspects of law enforcement, health, wellness, spiritual health, physical health, emotional health. And um, we have uh, always bringing you interesting guests, and there's no exception this uh, on t today's show. But before we get to the guest, I want to have my, what I call my reality check. And that is, this is where I eulogize uh, law enforcement officers who've given their lives in the line of duty since the last show. And I am pleased beyond, I can tell you the fact that since our last show, there have been no fatalities no law enforcement officer line of duty deaths, which is very, very rare. I think I can only remember one other time that's ever happened. So, but let's not get complacent because there have been 135 police officers shot since January 1st. Just this month alone, or excuse me, last month in April, um, approximately 35 cops were shot. That's more than one a day. So the reason that I'm not reading a eulogizing a line of duty death is because, not because the attacks have, have slowed or ceased, but because of more protective gear, uh, body armor, and the excellent trauma medicine that is now being practiced across the United States. And my next guest is going to talk a little bit about that as well. I'm going to introduce my next my guest here. And I've got to read his bio because it'll blow your mind. It's uh, it is really it's it's really amazing what this man has accomplished and what he is doing for the uh, for the community. Jonathan Scheinberg. He's got a lot of letters behind his name, but the biggest ones are MD. But he's also got couple of letters in front of his name, LT, because not only is he uh, a, a, a medical doctor who is active, but he's also a lieutenant with the Travis County, Texas Sheriff's Office. After graduation from college, John Scheinberg joined the Barnstable, Massachusetts Police Department. After working as a patrol officer in 1989, John decided to pursue medicine and joined the United States Air Force in order to do so. In 1994, he received his medical degree from Georgetown University in DC. He then completed a rotating internship at Georgetown University and his residence at the USAF Miss Medical Center, Keesler, Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi. After his residency, he completed his fellowship in cardiovascular disease and uh, then he rose to the rank of major, served overseas as the element le led uh, of a far forward critical care unit during combat in uh, uh, combat operations in the early stages of operation Enduring Freedom. In 
He is a decorated and disabled veteran from his service in Southwest Asia. Now, after separating from the United States Air Force and entering private practice in Austin, Texas, his passion for service to his community was still a very significant component of his life. And in 2005, Dr. Scheinberg decided to re-enter law enforcement and joined the Travis County Sheriff's Office as a tactical medic on their SWAT team. But a few years later, he entered the Regional Police Academy, uh, graduating nine months later as one of the few physicians in the United States who is also a sworn police officer. Over the last 15 years, John has worked his way up the chain of command and earned the rank of lieutenant and a member of the executive command staff. In 1916, he was selected to be, excuse me, let me try it again, 2016, he was selected to be part of the United States Marshal's Lone Star Fugitive Task Force and served as a special deputy United States Marshal for three years. I could go on, but I think that's enough. What do you think, Dr.? Do you think that's enough? I'm, I'm quite flattered, yeah. I think that's <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Scheinberg, thank you so much for joining me here on, uh, on our show, which, as you know, is dedicated to the health and wellness of our law enforcement community. And I can't think of a better guest to have. Well, thank you. Happy. It's, it's a privilege and an honor to be here. I, I, I'm happy to be a contributor. So I, I want to talk about, first of all, I want to tell my audience um, basically how we were put together. We, we met through uh, the filmmaker who is a retired Metro, Las Vegas Metro police sergeant, um, Jason Harney, who was interviewing you for a film. And when he told me about you and about, about what you, your accomplishments, uh, I said, we have to get together because you are right in the wheelhouse of everything about law enforcement health, wellness, and fitness. So um, that's how we met. Now, we're, I, I would like you to tell the audience, you know, you have a very, you have a very interesting background. Um, what was it about law enforcement that after you, you, you get your medical degree, what's your specialty in medicine, by the way? Let's talk about that for a minute. I'm a, I'm a board certified invasive cardiologist. So I spend my time not only preventing heart disease, but treating people who develop lives. How, how did you, how do you fit in the time to be it's, an active duty? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling to me that you can juggle being a full-time physician in, you know, it's a, it's in a, in a high pressure environment like, like you're in and also so, still be a cop. So it's interesting. So, you know, I was, let me say it this way. I honestly think people are born into our profession. You don't really choose to be a cop. It kind of chooses you. You know, and I, the, the old quote about there's 98% of us are sheep and there's 2% that are either wolves or sheep dogs. And we're just born into this. So ever since I've been a little kid, I wanted to be a cop. It's just part of my life. So um, I did it for a year, loved it, but I also had a passion for wanting to be a doctor and being in the military. So I'm fortunate enough that I was able to do all those um, when I got out of the military, the thing that I missed the most was the camaraderie and the, the unit, uh, the speed of corps, the unit cohesion. So my options were really to join a reserve unit and become a reserve officer um, or 
Air Force Reserve or International Guard, but starting a new cardiology practice, that's hard to do. I mean, they, they run the risk of being deployed. Uh, that basically takes you out of your developing clinical practice. So that's almost impossible to do for a new doctor. So I decided, hey, I'm going to go back to a police academy. I, I can get that camaraderie. I need it. I need you know, to go to work and just come home and there's no mission, there's no camaraderie. It just, I needed that part of my life. So I went back and enforcement and um, really with the intent of just serving as a cop and having this part-time job unrelated to the medical component. And it turns out um, with my experience in the military, there are battalion surgeons, flight surgeons, uh, ship surgeons that all contribute to their um, whatever unit they're served with. And they provide on-the-ground medical support, medical consultation to the uh, command staff, and it's really a good fit. So I was able to take both of my roles as a, as a cop and as a physician and blend them and provide not only medical care to the troops, but an overall medical oversight to the entire department. And uh, it's been really rewarding. And I'm able to do a, a lot on, on several different levels. And I, we can go into that now or I can talk about it. You know, we can touch on that later. But it's a very dynamic position. And uh, I'm able to make a difference in a way that a lot of other people can't. So I'm able to give back, still serve my community, and use my expertise to to the betterment of this of this cadre of officers. That really, is, you know, it's a paramilitary organization. So we apply the same kind of principles that we would see with those positions that I mentioned. For example, a flight surgeon or a battalion surgeon or a ship surgeon. There's a definitive role and a definitive need for this type of medical oversight in any type of this organization. Uh, you know, you touched on something. We're going we're gonna to hit a lot of different topics in the time that we have together. And I was reading uh, an article today uh, in Police One, on, on the Police One website, and it was talking about a, uh, the, the 21st century policing model that was originally um, – that was originally – put out there under the Obama administration by some very, uh, quote, high-level, unquote, um, police leaders. Once again, I'm putting air quotes around them. And it, it, one, and it, they apparently have resurfaced under the Biden administration with what I call some pretty uh, harebrained um, suggestions. And one of them is to do away with the paramilitary organization of policing uh, and, and make it, they, they use some very, you know, very uh, soft words, you know, to make it more inclusive. The usual jargon that is now in, instituted in basically anything political. What are your thoughts about how the paramilitary organization of law enforcement, in law enforcement, how, how imperative do you think it is to the to the uh, accomplishment of the law enforcement mission. Wow, that's a great question, and I, quite frankly, in my in my world, I can answer that question specifically from from my vantage point. You know, not as a chief or an assistant chief, but from what I do, you know, we we do have to follow a hierarchy. We do have to follow a structure. We do have to have attention to detail. We use ranks. We have authority based on the rank, so it is definitively a paramilitary organization. You can't strip that from it. It doesn't matter if you call the rank 
officer, sergeant, lieutenant, commander, supervisor, you can't get rid of the fact that this is an organization which parallels military service. Um, to call it something else, we're just changing the name, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change the definition of what we do. From from a medical perspective, the same population medical concerns occur when you have a large group of people deployed to an event, and that deployment could be a single event. It could shifts over the city, but you have medical concerns. I, I'll give you a quick example. Um, you have, have a group or a group of sailors or airmen who are in a hot environment providing security or fighting a war. There's medical issues those people have. Well, it's the same medical issues you have a group of officers have if they're serving here in Central Texas where it's 120 degrees out at an event, or if you're looking through the downtown patrol staff. So we do see we do see parallels. But let me, if I may take your your question and kind of just back step for a second. The 21st century uh, office, uh, the 21st century police model that was developed in the Obama administration had a bunch of you know, questionable pillars that they described. <laughs> One of the pillars they had was officer safety and wellness. So it did give us a platform. So regardless of what's going on with the overall intent or the overall direction of that concept, that uh, 21st century structure really developed into the officer safety and wellness working group with the Department of Justice, which I've had the pleasure of sitting on and contributing to. But the problem that that organization has is its ability to take the decisions that are made and distill it down to the individual officer. So for example, we would sit in um, uh, the Department of Justice for a three-day week, a three-day week, long weekend or three days during the week, and we would sit and would tackle several different officer safety and wellness issues, whether it's mental health, um, physical wellness, if it's safety in regards to body armor policy, reflective vest policy, and there were some of them very brilliant individuals sitting around this table, and we come up with excellent ideas. So what does the Department of Justice do? They take these phenomenal ideas, we write a 50-page document, and it's posted on the web somewhere. So you've taken this phenomenal mindset, this, this brilliant group of people, you've derived really good concepts, and you take it, you stick it on a website when the average cop has an attention span of 20 seconds, they're not <laughs> going to find it. They're not going to read it. So we've done all this work and we can't get the information out to the individual officers. So the Department of Justice has this a great mind trust to build this. And then they have two ways of delivering it. One is this huge publication online. And the other is a wallet card, which people don't use anyway. So the problem that we have that was really identified during that Obama administration 21st century policing model is we can create the infrastructure, we can come up with the concepts, but we have a very hard time of taking that information and distilling it down to the individual officer. That's the problem. So in essence, it was an exercise that, um, that didn't lead to any practical application. Because we're talking... Well, we're talking a, a significant amount of time ago that that you sat on this board and um, you you're you you came up with 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 a with a plan um, something that could be utilized but if agencies don't adopt the the plan then it's it was it was a lot of work for nothing 
But how do you get so, so now it, it, during that time period? Um, you know, I think that right now the we, we're seeing kind of a renaissance when it comes down to understanding that emotional, physical fitness, um, health and wellness is of paramount concern in policing. We didn't really have that. When you and I became cops in our early days, we were in this suck it up buttercup generation, right? And now we're, we're at least seeing that there is understanding and a move towards significant changes that can safeguard our law enforcement. How are you seeing the adoption of what you put together then? Is that now be becoming more practical when it comes down to application? So here, here, here's the best way to answer that question. And I, I sit on that board, I sit on the IACP boards, and no matter what wellness agency or what wellness government organization or private uh, non-profit agency or organization looks at wellness, there's several different pillars that always get hit depending on who's running the, the, um, the briefing. So for example, every wellness city or every wellness committee I've ever sit on, no matter what we decide, falls into several different places. There's tactical combat casualty care. So we have to develop, you know, uh, first aid kits, self-aid, buddy aid. There's cardiac screening, because no matter what you do, no matter how you look at it, the number one killer of cops is still heart disease. It's fitness, because we have a situation of cops that are not fit. It's because we have a situation in which police officers are overweight. So fitness and nutrition are two separate pillars because what we understand is you can have an officer who's fit, but overweight, and an officer who's of normal weight and not fit. So those are two completely different pillars of overlap. And the fifth one is mental health, um, which can be called emotional intelligence, mental health. Um, it, uh, there's so many different terms that can be sort of less um, carry less stigma with that. But the reality is all the wellness discussions fall into those five categories. Every department who want that is looking to build a wellness program really has to touch on those five things. That's a reverse engineered attempt to look at wellness. Because when you describe wellness, you define wellness, it, it almost eludes definition. It is a it is it is defined by the people who are asking the question. So for example, there are many more psychologists involved in officer wellness than there are physicians. So a lot of officer wellness revolves around what we call the resiliency, mental health, uh, mental trauma, peer support. So that's a huge thrust, but it's a direct result of having more mental health professionals in this profession than we have physicians. If the, if the wellness world was run by physicians, we would have less of that. It would be more diabetes, hypertension, weight control, cardiac screening. So we have really a situation in which we're defining the definition by looking about who's asking the question. You ask a group of chaplains, they define it as, as um, spiritual wellness. So in order to incorporate wellness, you've got to ask the right questions. What are we building this wellness program for? Well, when it's cops, it's tactical combat care, like I said, coronary disease, weight loss, fitness, and mental health. And if you book it into those sort of different categories, every wellness initiative will fit that. 
and they have to be addressed separately. And if you look at any wellness pro program in the country, at any agency, and I've helped set up a bunch of these, there's a variation on that, but they all stick to those same pillars. So we have the concept, we're getting the word out there. So you had mentioned, you know, how do we do this? How do we take this from a intellectual conversation and translate it into a practical answer to keep cops alive, healthy, and on the job? And, and I'll tell you something else, that's vital because if you, let, let me let me give you the, 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 the quote that I like to look at this, and that is, when an officer gets out of the academy, he or she is in the best physical shape of their life. They're completed academy, so we know they're typically physically fit. They've undergone some, at the very minimal, rudimentary uh, mental health screening. So we have at least, you know, screen them for significant mental health issues. And you take this phenomenal raw material in the best shape physically and mentally of his or her life. And over the course of a 20 to 25 year career, you destroy that person. You mm -hmm. give that individual a 22 year life expectancy difference in the general population, higher risk of heart attack, stroke, obesity, diabetes. You give them a higher risk of substance abuse and alcoholism, divorce and suicide. So you take this raw material and over a 23 year career, you destroy it. It comes out at the other end. It's a shell of the individual person who was there. And the average age of a cop in this country is uh, at the age of, the, the dies is at the age of 57. So we're looking at this horrible use of this phenomenal, I hate to use the term, but raw material, and we destroy it. So we have an obligation for these younger folks coming in, especially in an environment where recruitment and retention is terrible. We can no longer look at these young men and women who come into our profession and say, we're gonna suck all this out of you and then let you go and die. So we have an obligation to these folks to intervene throughout their career to make sure they're physically healthy and mentally well. And so I think we're making strides. The simple fact that we're having this conversation is a huge advantage. Five, seven years ago, this is something we never talked about. Right. So we're getting it out there. Um, and the question then is how do we take this message and how do we deliver it in an effective fashion? So I can tell you on one end of the spectrum, that 60 page report that is done on the Department of Justice website is not effective. It may be effective in an academic setting, but in a practical setting, the patrol officers, the sergeants who are sitting there aren't gonna look at it. On the other end of the spectrum are these little wallet cards they make, and they're, I don't think they're quite useful. The Department of Justice put out a program a few years ago called What's New in Blue, which is a six or seven minute video designed to show at show up that is highlighted different professionals. I have the, um, the honor of being a part of that. That was helpful. Podcasts like this are helpful. Publications and magazines are helpful, but it's a balance of you trying to get the right amount of information out there, but not make it too long that it's not, it's not something that an officer would want to digest and sit down again. Living in this world, I can say this and hopefully not be too, um, um, it'll come up as sort of end up with animosity, but we have no attention span. Our attention span of cops is, is like the attention span of a flea. We, we don't have the mental bandwidth. There's too many things going on. I'm not going to read a 30-page article, but i got to have this information delivered. And the way we do it is exactly the move we're doing today, is we got to have people that you, we can reach on multiple channels and say, look, I'm a cop. I know that my risk of heart attack, substance abuse, divorce, suicide 
is higher than my colleagues who are accountants or work in this business. So I have to look at this and it's up to me to make sure that I address these things because my command staff may not be able to, may not have the bandwidth or may not have the funding to launch a program to keep me healthy. So it's my job as an officer to know what I'm at risk for and know what I need to go look for so I can stay healthy on the job and enjoy the retirement that I worked so damn hard for for a 23, 25-year career. We have to take a quick hard stop for a, a commercial, and then we'll be right back. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said... Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility 
and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to onenationcoffee.com, order your coffee, and uh, you'll get great coffee, and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the Wounded Blue. So uh, go to onenationcoffee.com. Everything about this show is about officer safety, about keeping our cops alive, keeping them healthy, keeping them safe. And I want to tell you about a company that is that is doing some really incredible work. It's called OfficerPrivacy.com. It is a uh, was started by a uh, police officer, of course, who was deep into the technology uh, aspects of law enforcement. He discovered how easy it is to get your personal information off of the internet. I mean, when he came to me and explained to me what officer privacy does, which basically I think this is a must have for every cop in America. You, you know that there are people out there looking for you. They're looking to, to hurt you. They're looking to hurt your family. Uh, they're, they're savvy on the computer. Well, what this, what this company does, and it only uses uh, police personnel either active duty or former cops. The, they're the only ones that are involved here. They will go onto the internet and they will erase, they will get rid of uh, the identifying information. For instance, there were 36 refer, re references to where I live on the internet. Well, that's, that's pretty scary. Um, they removed them all. And, uh, and the price is very, very affordable. Uh, they're dedicated to what they're doing. So go to officerprivacy.com and uh, uh, go take a look at that. Uh, it's, it's something that you, you owe to yourself, you owe to your family, uh, whether you're an active duty cop or you're a you know former retired cop. Go to officerprivacy.com. Tell them Randy Sutton sent you. I, I don't think you get a discount, but it, it would be nice. Maybe we should do that. Go to officerprivacy.com. So let's bring... You know, you, there's you and I could talk for hours about this topic, and I and and so, someday I hope to actually sit down with you over a cup of coffee or a bourbon and and do just that. Um, doesn't doesn't don't the the police agencies and if you you know you go a little higher than that, the counties or the cities that 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 are the responsible parties for these police agencies, don't they have a responsibility to create the ability for officers to, I mean, the way you put it about, you know, you take a, you take a, a young police officer at the, at the, you know, the height of their, their physical prowess and their emotional stability and their mental stability, and then you, you degrade it over, over a police career. I, the way you put that was really hard-hitting for me. Don't these departments and the cities 
owe it to these cops to give them all the tools and the ability and the scheduling to accomplish that? A hundred percent. So not only do we owe it to them, but we owe it. Let, let, let me frame it a little bit differently. We owe a, um, we owe it to our cops to make sure they get home to their families at the end of the night, period. So how do we do that? Well, we create body armor policy. We create reflective vest policy. We create pursuit policy where we don't pursue for little offenses. We put plans in place to avoid what we would consider unnecessary risk. However, in terms of digging a little bit deeper and looking at this from a whole standard, how do you take a city, I'll give you an example, a city of Austin here, which uh, which has been all through the news. We are operating with hundreds and hundreds of officers less than what we should be. We were, we were low for our size of a city to begin with in terms of numbers of active officers, but with the defund movement that came in, we are operating with hundreds of officers less. So we have to make do with less. And what we end up doing is we're going from crisis to crisis to crisis. So when you have a situation, we're just putting out fires. How do you step back and ensure a wellness program when now you're asking cops, we're taking detectives and putting them on patrol. You're having mandatory uh, um, mandatory overtime. We have such crises right now that we can't take a step back and say, okay, let's talk about how we're gonna keep these cops healthy. The commanders have to worry about how am I going to staff this shift tonight? How am I going to, um, what specialized units am I going to, am I going to disband so I have enough patrol officers on the streets? Well, we've disbanded highway enforcement, uh, DUI task force, motors, um, our, our, uh, even our homicide detectives are pulling one week of patrol. So when you're in an environment like that, it's impossible to take a break and offer these cops what they need, which is the appropriate amount of mental health. And what we know about the mental health, and again, I'm not a mental health professional, but working with my colleagues in that area, what we've learned is the departments typically have very good programs set up for critical incidents. There's a nightclub shooting. There's a mass uh, shooting at Walmart. We have the mental health capacity to come in and respond to that. But a lot of departments don't have the daily mental health response that they need because the officers on the street, they're seeing you know, collisions, uh, domestic violence. And I remember the worst thing I ever saw when I was a patrol officer was a, a dog lit on fire. You know, for, like you see these things and they take their toll, these micro traumas take their toll. So mental health has to be incorporated. So when you're running extra shifts, still trying to do your off-duty employment to make ends meet, when do you have the time to do that? So we're running out of time. We don't have enough officers in uniform to be able to focus on this. We're going from crisis to crisis. So I would say not only it's an obligation for the command staff, but it's an ethical responsibility. If I'm a commander, I have to ensure to the best of my ability that my troops get home to their families at the end of the night. And that occurs on multiple levels. So yes, I agree 100% but it's hard to do with the environment that we have right now. And the defunding movement um, essentially has had the same effect on, on departments across the country. Um, what is happening in Austin is I think a little bit uh, more so because of the ultra liberal um, city 
or city uh, leadership, if you will, that have just basically um, created an environment that is that is so anti-law enforcement. Um, we could get in. There's another topic we could get into and talk about for hours. But what I'm hearing you saying is the defunding movement is destroying the health of law enforcement officers across this country. Is that fair to say? Without question, because it's deprioritizing that. When you are running a department with 60% of the police officers that you need to run, you have bigger fish to fry than making sure your officers have the right physical and mental health. You've got to, like I said, you've got to keep your unit staffed. You've got to keep your officers on the ground. You've got to keep continuity. It doesn't, we don't have the time to say, okay, um, we want a fit police force. We know a fit police force is a healthier force. It's a force that resorts to deadly force. It's a healthy force. It's a, it's a police department that uses deadly force at a lower rate. We know there's lower liability because a fit officer is much more likely to use a hand-on technique than deadly force. Um, we see less medical leave. So we know that a fit, healthy force is more effective. Okay, well, how do we do that? Well, I'm gonna set a fitness standard. We want our officers to be able to, whether it's a rolling machine, which we embrace here in Texas, the concept of rower, whether it's a standard military physical fitness test, if it's an agility or obstacle course, we're gonna set a fitness standard and we want our officers to adhere to that. Okay, that's wonderful. But if you have a patrol officer that's on the street, you have to be able to give him or her three hours a week to work out during their shift so they can meet the requirement. Otherwise, they don't have the ability to meet it. Um, if you're in a specialized unit, if you're a detective, we have more flexibility in your schedule, you have a higher chance of meeting that. But in a, in a city in which the number of cops is completely outweighed by the need for bodies, the officers don't have time to do it. So we do not have the ability to keep our officers as healthy, as fit physically, and as fit mentally as we, would, as we need to. It's, it's a problem. I want to talk to you about fatigue. Um, fatigue is a critical issue in law enforcement that's rarely addressed. And you just touched on a couple of the reasons for it. One is because mandatory overtime. You know, the cops are, are either working, you know, sometimes a 12-hour shift. And... That's a tough shift to work, especially, you know, when, when everything is coming at you all day or all night long. Then they're forced to, to say, work an extra shift um, to make up for, the, for the, the lack of manpower. Then, as you said, uh, you know, a lot of the, our, our cops don't get paid very well. So they have to work a second job. They have to work a construction job or, or work, you know, the overtime gigs in order to, you know, feed their family. And then they have a family life, too. So they're, I mean, it doesn't leave a lot of time for sleep. And in, in, your, in your experience, aren't we, aren't we facing a critical a critical issue here with the lack of sleep and fatigue? So even without all those things that you said, we still have a problem with sleep because we have shift work. And shift work is notoriously 
bad for sleep function. So there is a lot of sleeping issues that we see in law enforcement as well. So that has to be addressed, even if we didn't have these issues with with a uh, population of uh, overworked and undermanned police departments. So sleeping is a huge problem. It prevents our cops from being effective. It prevents them from making uh, appropriate decisions rapidly reacting. So there's a lot of data that's been published that sleeping is vital to the function of a police officer. Um, but now we've taken a bad situation with just routine um, shift work and we've compounded it with the, the issues that you mentioned. So it's a definitive problem. Now we know sleep not only reduces performance, it reduces decision making and it increases the risk of heart disease, heart attack, obesity. It's, it's not a good scenario. But we just made a bad situation worse by reducing the number of cops on the street. And interestingly, we're reducing the number of cops as the population of the cities continue to grow. So that delta is getting worse. So even if the cops weren't being reduced, which is what we've had over the last several years, the need for cops is increasing. So we have situations now in which the hotshot call time is 20, 30 minutes because only an officer is at one doing one call, they can do one call at a time. So um, that's the problem. So this undermanned, underfunded, undermotivated, disliked by the community police department is having to do more. So we're taking a bad situation and we're just making it worse. And as and as a, as a physician and a police officer, my job is to keep my troops alive, healthy, on the job. It's just, it's, it's a disaster. The other thing that goes along with the sleep cycle that's problematic and all this is we also have a situation in which our officers are losing motivation. So if we're, if we're keeping, if we're not keeping them healthy and we're expecting more, the motivation goes down, which is not good as well. So it's just a perfect storm and I don't know the answer. I, I can identify the problem. I don't know how we fill our ranks. You know, that's, Fortunately, you know, we say in the military, that's way up, well above my pay grade. All I can do is see the toll it's taking on our individual officers. I see officers all day long here, and I can tell you, at 100%, everyone's coming in defeated because they're overworked, they're tired, they don't feel like they're able to care for themselves, their medical conditions are flaring. Everything is at stopgap right now. We're, we're sort of trying to stem the tide, and it's not looking any better. I don't know the answer, Randy. I just tell you what we're doing now isn't working. We're at a crisis, and as someone who's spent their entire life trying to keep my brothers and sisters in uniform alive, healthy, on the job, it's devastating because we can only do so much. You know, one of the things that... Um that uh, boggles my mind in this, in this national crisis of retention of officers and recruitment. I mean, it, it, is a, it is a national crisis. It's not being treated as a national crisis. You don't even hear anything from the federal government ever talking about this. It's like, it's, it's, it's ignored, absolutely ignored that the federal government is doing absolutely nothing when it comes down to trying to solve the the public safety crisis that is roaring across this country. Um, 
one of the one of the the uh, uh, issues that boggles my mind is here in in Las Vegas, we don't have we didn't have the, a lot of the defunding issues that um, that many other cities had, but we're still seeing recruitment down more than fifty percent, right? Because this is a national issue. But while this is taking place, the state. When I got hired on, I had to do a 25-year police career in order to get my full retirement. 25 years. 25 years being a cop is pretty much, that's a lot of time. Your body is broken down. Your, your, your mental health is diminished, as you say. 25 years is a long time. Well, what did the state do? Now you get hired, you have to do 30 years. 30 years as a as a police officer is a hell of a long time and instead of trying to make the job more um uh to give more incentive to to do everything that you got to do to be a cop they're doing just the opposite they're making it worse and then you add on to that this is this is you know this is really this is very personal to me and to my organization. We see officers, once they do get hurt, either physically or emotionally, and we see police agencies that abandon them, that just say, good luck, and don't even get them the proper medical care or the proper mental health care. How do you, how do you see this all playing into this crisis of retention and and uh, recruitment. So that's, you know, that's the problem. When we have an attrition rate every month that's higher than we can replace the officers with, we have a problem because the department is shrinking every month. So how do you fix it? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. All I know is um, it's not viable with what's going on. Something has to change. You know, there's several models floated out there. One is the Las Vegas model in which an elected sheriff who doesn't have to answer to a city council is in charge of a larger area, a city. It's a metro department. You know, that's an option. Partnering with the state, and we're already having almost 100 state troopers on our patrol in patrol in Austin. So that's another option. But we've got to get the numbers up. We have a group of, I still believe in my heart that we have without question, an exceptional group of people that are selfless, hardworking, and committed to our profession, you know? And we have to really look at the situation and give these young men and women what they need. So not only do they stay on the job, but this employment situation for us is a viable option. People look at this, you know what? I want to be a cop because not only do I like the work, but they're going to take care of me. I know that I'm going to stay physically and mentally well. I'm going, to, excuse me, I'm going to be able to do this job at the end of my career. If I choose to, I'm going to have the physical and mental wellness to start another career or do something different or enjoy the time with my family. I don't want to be destroyed. I don't want to die 18 months afterwards. That is a retention and a recruiting tool. So to give our officers, yeah, every job is hard. I see, I go to work, I see people framing a house. I come home at the end of the night, they're still framing the house. They're working hard. People 
have to work hard in this country to do well. But if you work hard in an environment that asks you to put your safety and your life on the line every day, it's not unreasonable to expect at the end of the career you're going to be taken care of and not let out to dry. So officer safety and wellness is vital. It is an ethical responsibility of the department, of the leaders of the department, and of the city to ensure their officers make it home at the end of the shift and have a good, healthy life after they give up the career. So we're willing to work hard. We're willing to sacrifice our family time. We're willing to sacrifice our health and our lives for the citizens of the community in which we serve. And all we need is to be taken care of from a physical and mental health standpoint for the problems that are unique to our profession. It's not a lot. If we don't do this, if we don't fix this problem, Randy, we're gonna have less retention, less recruitment, and the problems we have now are just gonna amplify. And I am not seeing, I am not seeing anything on the federal level that is even addressing this issue. You know, you you hear about um, oh, the accountability. That, I mean, that's like buzzword bingo number one. When when you hear the word police, you may as well just follow it up with the word accountability, right? We hear it every single day. We got to be holding, we have to hold them accountable. We got to make sure. Let me ask you this. What do you think the, the, the psychological pressures of having to wear a camera and having your entire life recorded for your entire shift, knowing that anything that is uh, that is recorded could come back and destroy your career. How do you think that affects the emotional and mental health of our cops? So I can tell you again, I'm not a mental health professional. So I, I come at this with a, with an opinion, not fact and not data. But I can tell you, it plays a role. But every time I've actually asked this, the response that I've gotten from the command staff, and again, I have not seen the data, but the response is. The body cameras vindicate us more than they incriminate us. So, you know, I, I don't have a good answer. All I can tell you is the information that I've been told. But, you know, I'll, I'll go back to what I tell my kids, and that is, you know, to act with honor is you have to act that you're being filmed, you know, regardless. You, you know, it's easy to treat the the strays and the... Um, the um, the, the less fortunate and it's, you know, it's easy to treat people in a way that is appropriate if you know you're being watched. But if you can treat everyone in a way that you want to be treated, knowing you're being filmed, even if you're not, that's the way to live your life. So to answer your question is, I'm sure it plays a role as a, as a physical, as a physician, it's not a mental health expert, I can't give you a definitive answer, but I can tell you from what I've been told, the, the body cameras are supposedly more um, give, give us more of a uh, of a break than they do for harm. But I'm not. I, I can. I haven't seen the data. So as a scientist, I can't tell you definitively. But I would imagine it, it's got to have some impact on that. We're uh, you know we're really concerned here at the Wounded Blue with how police officers are treated once they're injured in the line of duty. I mean, we have case after case after case of 
um, police officers not receiving the proper medical care of uh, workers' compensation plans saying, um, we're not going to treat you for that because we think it's a pre-existing condition uh, until, you know, literally um, wh where officers can be fixed, the injuries become debilitating. And we are not seeing anything on a national level to, to put protections in place for, um, for these officers. Everything is done at a state level, and there has been no, um, no efforts at all to put anything into place to safeguard these, these officers once they become injured. When you were sitting on this, I mean, you know, the, the board that you were sitting on as far as the 21st century policing um, and, and, and the recommendations that you made, was this ever addressed or did anyone ever bring this factor up or is this just out there in the, in the wilderness and nobody knows about it? So it's, it was not brought up, but it's a huge point because I'll tell you, for example, I, I can talk from a cardiovascular perspective. In Texas, uh, Senate Bill 1482 was passed last, sorry, in 2019, which gave law enforcement officers uh, protection that if they suffered a heart attack, it was considered a line of duty event, even if it happened after the duty day. So we know from the physiology of a heart problem, it doesn't just happen. It becomes a problem over hours for that coronary plaque to rupture, which is what a heart attack is. So we can prove definitively that we see the beginnings of heart attacks before the heart attack occurs. We testified with CLEAT, which is the Combined Law Enforcement Association of Texas. Um, we were able to testify to the, the, the House and Senate here in Austin to get them to see this and put this in the, in the, as a legislative priority and make it a law. If you go across to Oklahoma, to the northern border, it doesn't exist. The joke is if you have a heart attack, get the officer back in his uniform, put him back in his car. Because it's otherwise not counted as a line of duty. A line of duty death <coughs> here in Texas is a $500,000 um, payment to the family, plus the federal PSOB benefit, plus the educational benefits. It doesn't make up for the loss of the individual, but it's very helpful for the family. Interestingly, the fire service has been at this longer than we have. They've embraced this wellness culture. They embrace the legislative component of it. So most states have a firefighter component, where if a firefighter suffers a heart attack, even after the duty day, it's considered line of duty. But it's very spotty. Every state is completely different. So you can imagine 50 different states with 50 different legislative priorities so in Texas now, we have what we call presumptive legislation. Certain states do, certain states don't. It's completely across the board. I'm asked to testify every couple of months for an officer who suffered a heart attack in a state that was not considered a presumptive state so that family can get line of duty benefits. And I'm able to present the data and show how this happens. Oftentimes we're successful, but it's very hard when there's statutory law that specifically states it's not there, or we see it for firefighters. So what I would propose is we would love to see some legislation on a national level that gives both our firefighter brothers and sisters and our law enforcement and EMS workers too, a line of duty protection for heart attacks. So if an officer has a heart attack and it doesn't happen 
But let's say an officer has a heart attack at 4 p.m. and their shift ends at 6. It's covered. At 6.30, it's not covered anymore. Like, it, it, it defies logic. So this discrepancy in what's considered presumptive in line of duty has to be fixed. But that would be... I, I, have, I, have, to, I have to stop you there because, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I mean, like I said, you and I could talk about this for hours, and I'll have you back on the show because we're just getting warmed up. Um, but I, I want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Scheinberg, for taking the time to join me here on the Wounded Blue Hour. Uh, your, your, uh, your dedication to your department, to the, to the law enforcement, is uh, absolutely incalculable. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to be here. Well, um, before we go, I would ask you to do this. I'd ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org and check out our organization. If you are an active duty police officer, I urge you to come to the training in Las Vegas, November 26th to the 29th, the third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. Everything that, that Dr. Scheinberg and I talked about on this show is addressed on in this amazing training conference. It's only 295 bucks. Your department should send you, but if they don't, it's worth your investment in yourself. Uh, the information is on thewoundedblue.org. Check it out there. And if you support law enforcement, hit that donate button and give what you can. I'm Randy Sutton. Thank you for joining me here at the Wounded Blue Hour.